Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <laughs> Repent of your sins. Repent of your debauchery. Repent of your sins. Repent of your debauchery. The words were echoing across my college campus. Uh, the man stood on a makeshift soapbox, and he was clothed in a suit and a tie, and he was yelling through a megaphone, Repent of your sins and your debauchery. And yet it seemed with every increase in his decibels, less and less people were giving him any attention at all. His crowds were college students, after all, and the last thing we wanted to hear about was our sins and whatever it meant to repent of them. And day after day, he would stand from this perch. He would preach the exact same thing over and over and over again, the same words of fear and of challenge and of torment, and I never once saw anyone stop to talk to him. But we talked about him all the time. Whether we were uh, in the dining room or we were uh, in one of our classes or we were in the library, we were talking about him all the time. We called him the prophet. And we wondered where in the world he came from, who he was, and what did he really believe. He was a regular topic of our conversation. And like all good college students, we spent more time wondering about the prophet than we did anything that we were learning about in our classes. And so our best guess was that he was from one of the local Baptist or evangelical churches, that he might have even been a pastor, and that he foolishly believed that yelling at people like us would somehow make us want to go to his church on Sunday morning. And the weeks and the months went by, and he remained steadfast in his mission. In fact, he became such a permanent marker in the landscape of my college campus that on the few rare occasions he wasn't there, I was worried something had happened to him. But then the next day, he'd be back. This went on like clockwork until Advent. I went to church on a Sunday morning like I always did, sitting in the very back pew. My people in the back, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Hiding out from everybody else in church. I was the token college student, the one and only in the whole wide church, trying to mind my own business. And I was sitting in the back of the church, and I heard someone stand up at the lectern and read these words. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went to all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I stopped listening to everything else. Because for the first time, I saw the prophet on campus in a very different light. Instead of assuming he was off his rocker, or at the very least, a very mixed-up sense of evangelism, I began to see the connections between the prophet on my campus and the prophet we call John the Baptist. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop thinking about it so much that the next week I found myself inexplicably walking across campus toward him while everybody else was fleeing in the opposite direction. And I had no idea what I was going to say, but I knew I was going to say something. Here we are in Advent, this season of being in the in-between in between the things the way they are and the way things ought to be. And we often experience it as this time apart that is dedicated to preparations. At home, we're cleaning, 
We're decorating or procrastinating. We find that perfect Christmas tree and then we stress out when all the old lights don't work. We pull the box of ornaments out and then we start to cry when we see the reindeer we made in the third grade out of popsicle sticks. And it's in the midst of all this busyness, all of the preparations, in walks this crazy prophet named John the Baptist, proclaiming a very different kind of preparation. It's important to remember that John was a PK. Do you all know what a PK is? A preacher's kid. Yeah, he's just like my son Elijah. He knows what he's supposed to know. He knows what he's supposed to believe. He knows how he's supposed to dress because he's heard daddy preach about it every week of his life. That's John the Baptist. And yet John saw a very different vision of what it meant to be faithful. And the people at the time, they believed all the power was back in Jerusalem. John, he said it's in the wilderness. The people uh, believed that God was on their side no matter what. And John knew that everyone needed to repent. The people believed in presenting the very best version of yourself to others. And John, he wore camel's hair and he ate honey and wild locusts. A new word came to John. In the wilderness, the time had come to prepare for a very new way, one in which every mountain would be dropped low and every valley would be lifted up. He was bold and he was crazy. Bold and crazy in his actions and bold and crazy in his words. Take a good, hard look in the mirror, friends. Look at yourselves. Repent of your sins. Repent of your transgressions if you want to be ready to receive the one who is coming. Repentance? It's not something we like to think about during this time we call Advent. Instead, people outside the church are spending their time stringing up lines of popcorn in their living room trees. They're humming along to Bing Crosby in elevators. They're getting ready for Christmas. But here in the church, we are listening to a very different kind of tune. The challenging words of a radical prophet who says the time has come to repent. Repentance. It's one of those words we either avoid or we throw around without really knowing what it means. Repentance, metanoia, it literally means to change one's mind, to be reoriented, to turn around. In the very first version of this sermon, I wrote a couple paragraphs and then I decided I was going to walk down the center aisle and preach the rest of the sermon from the back so that all of you literally had to turn around to hear what I had to say. That's what repentance is. It's a turn, a shifting, a reprioritizing, a looking backward. And John says it's in metanoia, it's in turning around that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The people who scream about the kingdom of God from the street corners of life, like that college campus prophet to even what we're reading about here, it makes us very uncomfortable. We see their cardboard signs or we see the oblong megaphone and we start asking ourselves all kinds of questions. Who in the world is this person? Where did they come from? What do they really believe? And they make us uncomfortable because they are pointing at a reality that we often talk about in church, but we don't really do anything about it. They use that word, that R word, repent. And it sinks deep in our souls and it convicts us and it confronts us in a way that we're not comfortable with. John the Baptist makes us uncomfortable. He joins this story of expectancy here at the beginning of the gospel, and he knows something about living in the in-between. He, more than most, understands the need to truly condition the nature of our souls, our minds, our bodies, what we've done, what we've left undone, what we regret, the damage we've caused. 
where we should have spoken up and where we should have remained silent. John's words, his ministry, they upset the status quo. They turn upside down all of the complacency that the people felt and people like you and I feel. It says the kingdom is like an earthquake that is shaking all of the old expectations about what to say and about what to do. The fault lines of change are running through history. Everything will be transformed forever. There is a new order in which every valley will be lifted up and every mountain will be brought low. Prepare the way of the Lord. Repent and find Jesus. They are rather uncomfortable words, particularly if you're like me and you're on top of the mountain. They're uncomfortable because it says something is about to change. So I walked across the campus that day with a focus and a determination that I should have been reserving for my classes. And when we were close enough to each other, the prophet and I could see each other in the eye. He stopped talking into the megaphone, and I realized, perhaps for the very first time, I was the first person to ever talk to him. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and we were silent because neither of us really knew what to say. And then finally, I blurted out in a way that probably terrified him as much as he terrified me, what are you doing this for? Why are you doing this every day? He lowered the megaphone very slowly, and he said, we live and we're stuck with each other in this crazy world. I'm just trying to save everybody. We're stuck with each other in this crazy world, and I'm just trying to save everybody. Our repentance, our metanoia, our turning around will likely involve us taking a really good hard look at ourselves in the mirror, recognizing that there are plenty of ways that we could be better. There are plenty of ways that we could speak when we need to speak and where we could shut up and where we need to shut up. That our turning, our reorienting ourselves will convict our hearts. Repentance. It compels us to not just look at ourselves, but look at the institutions around us, to look at the people around us and say, what of all of this is building the kingdom up? And what of this is tearing it down? And what part do we want to play? Because in this world... That is just so focused on grace, we forget that we need grace because we're sinners. Whether we've made the wrong choice or made no choice and therefore sinned by omission, we forget that grace is a good and great thing, but we only need grace because we're sinners. Grace is nothing without sin, just like resurrection is nothing without crucifixion. And so Advent, strangely enough, is this time where we pause and we reflect and we repent. We repent before we follow the one born in the manger, hung on a tree, freed from grace, and the one for whom we are still waiting. Repent. Turn back to Jesus. The prophet from the wilderness and the prophet from my college campus are still screaming at people like you and me. But when we turn, what does it accomplish? What changes when we turn? Can we hear that challenging word? Can we hear the person screaming at us and turn around and walk in the light until the end of our days? See, the end of all of our preparing, the end of all of our repentance for Jesus Christ, it inevitably leads us to a very strange conclusion. We cannot save ourselves. We can't. Nor can we hope to save anyone else. And we can never really prepare the way for Jesus. It is only God in Christ who actually makes a way for the arrival. 
See, that's the problem with a lot of uh, a lot of ministry today, a lot of preaching today, a lot of screaming at people in the street corners of life. We think it's our job to save ourselves, or we think it's our job to save everyone else. Only Jesus saves. That's what the prophet on my campus missed. It's what preachers like me miss all the time when we think that the world hangs on our shoulders. Only Jesus saves. Jesus entering the world on Christmas. When Jesus enters the world in return, it's not contingent on our worthiness or our repentance. Though that certainly doesn't mean we shouldn't repent. Jesus isn't waiting up in heaven and saying, mm, okay, okay, Mary, I'm still waiting for you to turn. And uh, Carlos, oh, just a little bit more. Oh, now I can return. No. Jesus comes in the world regardless of our repentance. Regardless of our sins. Regardless of our faults and our failures. That doesn't mean we shouldn't turn. But it does mean that we have to remember we don't get to save ourselves. No amount of screaming at people on campus will save anybody. It is only the power of God. It is only God who saves. We just get to witness it. And so it's true. We are stuck with each other. We are stuck with each other in this crazy mixed up world. In the middle of time. Between Advent and the rectification of all things. We are stuck with each other. We are stuck in the middle of the way. We're sinners, and we're stuck in our sin. Even if we're strong enough to turn and repent, we will inevitably turn back to our own way again. And yet John still says, turn. John pleads with us to turn. Not because it earns us anything, not because it is the prerequisite for Christmas, but simply because it's what's normal for being a Christian. Because every time we encounter the cross, it's like a giant mirror to who we really are. And the power of the Spirit moves within us to say, I can be better. Not because it achieves anything, but simply because I am compelled by Jesus. Repentance. For Christians, it's as simple and as natural as breathing. For some reason, we don't talk about it. And perhaps the reason we don't talk about it is because the people who call us to turn are some of the most unlikely people in the most unlikely of places. Like a man named John, born to Zechariah, who wore camel's hair and ate locusts with wild honey. He was in the most unlikely of places as one of the most unlikely of people. And yet people listened to him. Just like that prophet on my college campus, he called people to turn. He was an unlikely person in an unlikely place. We never really know from where the word of God will come. But it always comes. And it usually comes in places we don't expect. Perhaps a worship service, or even on a college campus, or even sometimes through a major. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Would you all please bow your heads and join me in prayer? Lord, pour out your spirit on all of us who are gathered here and on all of these hats on our altar rail and on our altar, that they might be filled with your love and grace and mercy, such that we all might be filled with your love and grace and mercy, knowing that our repentance, our turning, doesn't achieve anything except allow us to be part of your kingdom. That in turning, we don't turn to some new mountaintop experience, but we merely turn back to you. 
that instead of focusing on our own needs, our own desires, our own hopes and dreams, we might believe and see that your needs, that your hopes, your dreams, your desires are more important than our own. So if we're in the valley, O Lord, raise us up. And humbly, O Lord, we pray that if we're on the mountaintop, you might bring us down. But that ultimately, you might work through your Son and your Spirit to turn all of us away from ourselves, but back to you. And all God's people say...